Hey everyone, this is Kurt Mercadante. And whether you're a first time listener or a long time listener, I want to thank you for choosing to spend your time with me and our guests here on Freedom Mindset Radio. You know, now more than ever in this turbulent time, it's important to share and spread our message of freedom and fulfillment around the globe. So if you get value from this podcast, I have a favor to ask. If you could go wherever you listen to this podcast and leave us a positive rating and review, that helps us carry our message further around the globe. And if you wouldn't mind, Post a link to this podcast on your Facebook page. Share it on Twitter, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, wherever you're at on social media. I want to thank you for helping us take our message to those people around the globe who truly need it. And I want to thank you for being a loyal listener. Thank you. I am powerful because I choose to be a causative force in my own experience. I am powerful because I choose to be an individual who has an impact on his world without asking anyone or anything for permission. What does the word freedom mean to you? Only you can define it in your life and only you can decide to build the life of freedom and fulfillment you deserve. This is Freedom Mindset Radio. I'm your host, Kurt Mercadante, and we're grateful you're here. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Mercadante with the Freedom Media Network here with another incredible interview with someone who is changing the world. We're here with T.K. Coleman. He's the Director of Entrepreneurial Education with the Foundation for Economic Education and host of their incredible program, Revolution of One. T.K., thanks for joining us today. Hey, man. It's good to be here. All right, T.K., there's one set question. It's the only set question I ever have for anyone on this program, and that is this. The word freedom, what does that word mean to you? recognizing that I have the permission and the power to be the predominant creative force in my own life. It's understanding that that power does not begin with a discussion of external realities. It begins with an affirmation of internal reality, that I am not powerful because I happen to have the president that I want. I am not powerful because it happens to be the case that my circumstances agree with me. I am powerful because I choose to be a causative force in my own experience. I am powerful because I choose to be an individual who has an impact on his world without asking anyone or anything for permission. I am powerful because it is a state of mind. there's an illustration I heard once of a, of a father and his son, and the little son was running around, and the father told him, hey, I want you to sit down, and the son you know, doesn't listen. He keeps running around. The father says, sit down. Son keeps doing the same thing. The father stands up. The little boy sees it. He means business, and so he sits down, and the father you know, nods approvingly and goes about his business, and then the son says, I'm still standing up on the inside. Nice. Right. So here was an illustration of someone who experience what it was like to have less power than someone who was bigger than him, than someone who had the ability to physically threaten him and perhaps coerce him to sitting down. But he still understood that real power comes from intentionality, right? That no matter how you lord over me in the physical realm, I always have the ability to stand up from the inside. And throughout human history, wherever and whenever human beings have affirmed that fundamental truth, they have been able to figure out how to become free externally. 
Yeah, I don't know if you've ever read Eric Butterworth, the author Eric Butterworth. He was a, a minister in the Unitarian, or yeah. sorry, the Unity Church. But he talks about the fact that, listen, if, you know, humans mo millennia ago, we were in caves, right? Yeah. And if we never used the power of our creative minds, if we favored that security, we would never ventured out from the cave. And when we ventured out from the cave, I mean, my goodness, the wild beasts that were out there, the environment, yeah. we didn't survive because of our brawn. Yeah. It was that creative force in our mind that taught us how to make tools and then weapons and technology, whatever that technology was then and whatever that technology is now. So it's always been there, right? It's always been there. And, you know, people have been so conditioned to think of power as something that exists everywhere except in the individual that they have subscribed to these irrational beliefs that make them dismiss this kind of talk as fluff. And I always say to people, if you find yourself laughing at the idea of individual power, ask yourself who's laughing at you as you're laughing at that. Mm -hmm. Like who wins when you believe that the individual lacks power? It's certainly not you. And anytime someone other than you is winning, when you subscribe to a belief, you might wanna rethink that belief. My agenda in life, it's not to create a society in which every person feels free. It's to create the kind of individual who can figure out to be free in any society. Because here's what people overestimate about politics. There is no way you can set this world up politically in a way that gives us the kind of freedom that can't be given away. Right. To truly be free means that I can choose enslavement, right? Yeah. And so if you have a world where people don't believe in their own power, they don't respect themselves, they will always be willing to trade in away their freedom for the promise of free goodies. We'll always have deceptive politicians and we get so angry at them. These politicians are promising you free goodies in exchange for your freedom, but the politicians aren't the ones that we need to worry about. In a world where people respect their personal power, those politicians immediately become irrelevant. In a world where people don't, those politicians become immensely powerful. How do we deal with this at the root cause, not at the level of the symptom? By pausing our discussions on politics for five minutes and revisiting discussions on the creative power of the individual. And it's so interesting because in this world of tribalism, I interviewed Randy Gage a few months ago on this program. We talked about tribalism and people lacking uh, fundamental meaning in their lives, and that's why people join gangs, that's why they latch to religions without, certain religions, not everyone, without any critical thinking, that's why they may latch to a political party. And what you're talking about, even having that discussion, people in this day and age, and I don't know if it's more polarized than it's ever been, I mean, if people read their history books, I mean, during World War II, we didn't have Fox News or CNBC reporting. There were people on the floor of Congress calling people yellow, calling people cowards. I mean, you go back centuries, we had people getting beaten almost to death on the floor of Congress. So I don't know if we're more polarized, but what I think now is you have that discussion about the fact that freedom, you know, you were born with freedom. Do you give it away or do you keep it? No matter who's in power, you now suddenly are part of the problem because you don't want to talk about politics. And if you don't want to talk about politics, that means you de facto support whoever is in the White House. And if you support who's in the White House, you're this and that, whoever it is. It happened when Obama was in the White House, it happens now when Trump. If you don't do your civic duty, by getting angry on Facebook, by giving away your freedom, then you are somehow less responsible than others. We're seeing it now with coronavirus. I posted something yesterday like, listen, me, seeing every single new case and every single new death of coronavirus in Italy and Iran, wherever it is, does not make me any more effective to fight it, to deal with it, or by the way, to keep building my company and taking care of my family. Yeah. I had people who said, no, 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 no. 
you're demonizing public education. I said, there's a difference between public education and Corona porn. You know, sitting there story after story after story. But you could take that from coronavirus, you can apply it to politics, you can apply it to just about anything, right? And people, people give away their freedom for that that they attach their meaning to whatever it is, I guess. 100%, man, you know, I tell people all the time, I don't wanna talk about what the president's doing, I wanna talk about what you're doing. Now, maybe we can talk about both, we don't have to have an either or perspective, but if I had to choose one, I'd rather talk about what you're doing. And, and some people get it twisted, they may say, oh, you're, you're being politically correct, you're taking the easy way out. My first response to that is, excuse me, <laughs> have you taken a look at your world? Do you honestly believe that opting out of political discussions is politically correct? Yeah, Please right. wake up and pay attention, right? <laughs> But, but here's the second thing. I actually think infatuation with politics can be a form of hiding. Because here's one of the things that politics allows us to do. It gives us the convenience of saying things like, hey, I voted for the right guy. Hashtag not my president, right? Hashtag not my senator. I did what I was supposed to do. I wrote my letter to the senator. I showed up to the voting booth and I voted. Because let's be real. People aren't showing up and actually doing something to try to change the world 365 days a week. The overwhelming majority of people are casting their vote, and then if they win, they say, yay, the world is right for the next four years. And if they lose, they become depressed, they become afraid. And who are you helping in that state? There's nothing wrong with feeling that way, but you can't equate moods with morality. You can't equate emotions with ethics. It's okay to feel angry at your world, but until you translate that anger into creative and constructive action, it means nothing. So when you talk about the creative power of the individual, that's more pressure because now I put pressure on myself to take care of my body, to treat my family and friends with respect, to actually talk to homeless people, no matter how smelly they might be, rather than to say this person ought to do something about those homeless people <laughs> over there that I never have to interact with, right? It's much easier to, to vote than to volunteer my actual time than to take responsibility for my world. It's not the easy way out, it's the hardest way out. That's why it's the way of freedom, because freedom is always easier to avoid than to fight for. Yeah, and and, I don't know if you agree, but voting, and you see everyone with the I voted stickers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now there's a new hashtag and there's a new thing, I stayed home, right? So I saved the world and I stayed home. Sure. This hashtag activism um, has become, and voting has turned into this, virtue signaling, where the virtue signaling is more important than what you're talking about, which is I'm actually taking personal responsibility. Now, I did my duty because I shared uh, a video of Gloria Gaynor singing I will survive while washing her hands. And if you are like her and you wash your hands singing, and I shared that, therefore I'm a good person, right? Yeah. And then if you ask that person, okay, why don't you go out, like you said, help a homeless person, or why don't you go out to an elderly person in your neighborhood and go shopping for them? No, 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 I can't do that. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's even stronger than that. Check this out. Because I, you know, I grew up in a religious home, my father's a pastor, and if there's anything I'm accustomed to hearing, it's people who are not religious telling people who are religious to watch it with their preachiness, right? Uh, and, and I think there's something right about that. I, I think you have yeah. to advocate for your philosophy but respect people's right to disagree. So I agree with it, but here's what's funny. Can you imagine how rude I would be considered? If I walked up to people, you know, who were obese and, and clearly not for, you know, um, things beyond their control, people who overeat, overindulge sure. in fast food. And I said things like, hey, man, you need to quit making excuses and get to the gym and work out right now. Can you imagine if I got on YouTube and if I got on Facebook and I was like, yo, went to the gym today. What did you guys do? Did you perform your civic duty to take care of your body? Easy, TK. 
it's good to advocate for health, man, but don't be so pushy, yeah. right? Like, like don't put so much pressure. Hey, I read a book today. How many books did you read? Like, when it comes to the kinds of things we can do in everyday life to change ourselves and change our world, we're very sensitive about being preachy, but there is one area, and this is proof to me that it's the biggest religion of our time. There is one area where it is socially acceptable to be preachy and nobody will call you on it. It's being politically involved. It's showing up and voting. You can't even talk about Christianity like that. You can't even tell people to go to church. Right. You can't tell people to re read, read their Bible. You can't tell people to be you know, good moral human beings and take care of the poor. That's preachy. But if it's voting, that's the one thing that you can get in people's faces about. Tell them you're not performing your civic duty if you don't do it. To me, politics is the greatest religion of our time. And I'm not hating on people because I don't want to give anybody an excuse for disregarding the, the essence of my message here by focusing on the political aspect. If you vote, I'm not offended by that. Right. If you feel the need to preach to other people about performing their civic duty, I'm not threatened by that. I'm not offended by that. But if you really want to change the world, add something to it. Start preaching that way to yourself and to others about exercising, about feeding your mind, about learning something new, about developing new skills, about all the things that you can do 365 days out of the year in the marketplace without permission to make this society freer. Because the truth is, politics, no matter how much impact you think it has, is the arena where you have the least amount of direct influence. Right, right, no, absolutely. I, let me ask you about this, because you've, you've brought up the word individual many times. Mm -hmm. The word individualism. Yeah. Evil, is that word evil? And why not? Why or why not? I mean, to some people it is, and just like the word capitalism, I'm not unempathetic as to why it's considered to be evil. You know, uh, the Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias says, anytime you can take another person's belief, mock it and make it look completely stupid, chances are you don't understand that belief, nor do you understand the way people think. I'm sensitive to why people are mm -hmm. sensitive about the word individualism. To me, it's a good word because individualism is simply the recognition that before I am the member of a community, I am an individual who must think and act first. I can choose to opt into communities and I can choose to opt out of communities. And to some degrees, communities are necessary, but communities cannot act independently of the individuals who comprise them, right? Uh, and it's important to, to build communities from a recognition of the value of personal responsibility because communities deteriorate not because of communities, but because of a foregoing of responsibility at the individual level. Yeah. I asked that question, my, my daughter it was in church school, we no longer go to that church where there was a page that said individualism is evil and it equals greed and it equals selfishness. Mm, yeah. And we used that as a learning moment. First of all, you're, we're not gonna have you in that class anymore. I'm not gonna send you somewhere that teaches you to dislike yourself. That's what it, was, it came down to because there was no context. You put a kid in a class for 20 minutes, individualism is bad, see ya, bye. Most of those kids aren't like our daughter and have a discussion. Yeah. But I think, you know, in this day and age, I mean, you look at coronavirus and you look at what I, my own personal opinion, has become a little bit of a compliance culture. Mm -hmm. Whether it's now confusing the word, not confusing the word, tolerance yeah. used to mean something different. Mm -hmm. And now tolerance means compliance. Um, cancel culture, whatever it is, whatever you want to say. And, you know, Ricky Gervais got on the Golden Globes, yeah. gets whatever, 10 million views, everyone nods their head and goes back to compliance because you don't want to speak out, you don't want to do these things. Yeah. Is individualism waning in our society? 
so healthy individualism. Yeah, I, I think it is, but I'm not sure if it's waning any more than it has in previous societies. Because I, feel free to educate me on my history right here and right now, and I'll humbly receive from you. But I'm just not aware of this freedom-loving society that you know, you know. <laughs> yeah. you know I'm just not aware of, of when yeah. that was, right? Like freedom was always this thing that was very difficult to obtain and even more difficult to hold on to once you have it and you're comfortable with it. But you know, I, I want to talk about this individualism and the statement that was made at your daughter's school. Here's what I think they meant. I think what they meant was something like. The pursuit of self-interest at the expense of other people's individual rights and well-being is the cause of all evil. And I would say, you know what? That's exactly right. Yeah. What, what is happening when a serial killer, a serial killer, does the kind of evil that serial killers do? They are pursuing their own individual gratification at the expense of someone else's individual rights. And it seems that without even getting that dramatic, that's what all the different forms of evil are, are manifestations of. That's what theft is about. That's what everything is about. And so if you mean that by individualism, yeah, it's bad, right? But the people who take pride in that word, the people who describe themselves as individualists, typically don't mean that, right? Right, yeah. right. Well, I, as I told my daughter, I said, St. Peter was hung upside down and murdered. I would call him an individualist, St. Joan of Arc. I would call, you know, this was in her church school. Yeah, yeah. And she said, yeah, you're right. And I said, you, you know, the problem was without context, people just fire these things off. And yeah. individualism is bad and it's destroying America. And it's like, well, what do you yeah. mean by that? Let's, yeah. let's unpack that a little bit, right? And, and there's a communication <laughs> lesson in that, right? Because if you're interested in communicating the philosophy of freedom, it's important to not only desire that people listen to you and understand you charitably, but that you, you give them that same gift. So if someone says to me, individualism is the root of all evil, I'm not gonna get anywhere by saying, you're an idiot and you're wrong. Yeah. I'm gonna get somewhere by saying, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Okay, based on that definition, absolutely. You're totally right. Here's what I mean by individualism, and we can call it whatever you want, because I'm not here to fight over the language. Yeah. I'm here to fight for the reality that these languages express. And as long as we can fight for that same reality, hey man, you can have the word. You can have capitalism if you want it. You can have individualism if you want it. Just give me a free society, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Another thing about this is that um, when it comes to, to self-interest, I, I think it's important to teach people that you can't help but have it, right? Individualism isn't something that you can choose. It's something that you can just consciously accept as an you know, um, irreducible fact of human experience. Um, you can never get away from your own desires. Every choice you will ever make is either based on some kind of desire to acquire more pleasure or to avoid pain. Even the person who says, no, 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 man, I just do good, I just do good things because I just want you know, to serve God and please the Lord. Okay, so my question for you is, does it feel good right. when you are pleasing to God? Yeah, how would you feel if you stood before the pearly gates and God says, I am displeased with you? You'd feel terrible, right? So your decision to please God is based on the fact that you're looking out for your own fulfillment and you understand that your fulfillment is going to be satisfied if you live in a way that's pleasing to God. This is why in the Bible, you know, um, the, uh, the, the apostles spoke of themselves as not making sacrifices at all. You know, th they said things like, I count it as dung, you know, the things that I gave up to follow God. And, and in fact, they, they spoke of themselves as people that were still pursuing self-interest, but as the only ones who understood where the real treasures were. The treasures aren't in the things that you're foolishly fighting over on this earth. The treasures are the intangible, invisible things that really meet the needs of the human heart. And let's, on that last part, let's dive into that because 
what you said at the very beginning in terms of your mission. Yeah. And you talked about that creative force within you and the word prosperity. Hmm. And that a lot of people look at prosperity as those external substance things, right? Yeah. That you go out and you get. Yeah. And when you spend your whole life, and we're all programmed in some way, yeah. you can reprogram yourself to look at it. It's different. When that is what prosperity means to you, and suddenly, like in the situation we're currently in, where restaurants, businesses, everything's shut down by force, because of the coronavirus. <clears throat> However anyone feels about that, people mm -hmm. are out of work, it's about 20% unemployment. If you've set yourself up to base your idea of prosperity and freedom and abundance on stuff, and by the way, I'm not criticizing in sure. any way, I'm a free market, I'm a capitalist, you know, things great, wealth, prosperity, money is what we use, is the receipt yeah. for value you provide. Yeah. But if you've based all prosperity on going and getting stuff rather than something that's within you and it's a state of mind, you're in a world of hurt if you lose your job, yeah. if there's a downturn <clears throat> in the economy, if there's a virus, if there's a recession, if there's a terrorist attack, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you referenced Eric Butterworth earlier. Um, he has a book I read many years ago called Spiritual Economics. Yes. And he just talks, finished it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He talks about this idea how stuff is satisfying, but it's secondary. It's not the starting point, right? That wealth is a state of mind. Now, hang with me if you're listening, because I'm sure as soon as I said wealth is a state of mind, I triggered the entire world of people <laughs> that are deathly afraid of anything that sounds like an Instagram inspirational or, or you know, a picture or something along those lines. But hang with me for a second, because this is not just grounded in fluffy, wishful thinking. This is grounded in sound economics, okay? Um, so money is a symbolic representation of creative power. Right. Um, so, so when we talk about this thing called wealth, we can use many different tokens or symbols to represent what value really is. But money and value are different things. Money is a reward for creating value. Right. So. The biggest lie is this idea that it takes money to make money. It doesn't take money to make money. It takes value creation to make money because you can have money, but if you don't have any projects to invest in or any way to use that money that will solve problems for people, then you're not going to make money. That's why people who win the lottery, on average, they lose their money, right? right? right. Having money isn't the same thing as increasing the amount of it that you have, but you have people that have gone from poverty to becoming millionaires because they figured out a way to create value. So what do you need to make money? What you need is some kind of ability to make people feel like their experience is better off. That can be the ability to make them laugh. That can be, be the ability to give them perspective during hard times. That can be the ability to make them forget about their problems. It can be a, a host of things. And, 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 and the reason why I say wealth is a mindset and why I think this is so empowering is because there are a lot of people out there who don't have money, they don't have any obvious opportunity, and the way that you get from that position to a position of wealth is by saying, okay, I still have something to offer. I still have something that I can do for people. If I look within into the realm of my ideas, my insights, and my inclinations, I can take that and I can translate that into some kind of service that can make another person say, wow, I am pleased. Wow, you just enhanced the quality of my life. And that's how you get the money. And it goes back to creative force because it all starts with that idea. Even if you make something that's tangible or you make Uber, to use an example, right? It started with someone's idea. Maybe they were drunk on a Saturday night. Hey, man, you know, we should be able to just do ride share so I can get a ride home and I don't have to drive. 
Well, yeah. that idea, there's some people who have those ideas. Yeah. And then they, I was telling, my, my son is um, 11 years old and he's, he's so creative unless you ask him, create something, right? It's like funny people tell a joke. Yeah. and like, well, no, I can't do that. I gotta, it's gotta come to me. And so I said, is it harder to think up an idea if I say think up an idea than it is if you're just sitting there and you're relaxed and you're loose and it pops in your head? He says, yeah. I said, that's what creativity is like. Yeah. It's because if you're like, I gotta come up with an idea and I gotta make money, otherwise I'm gonna die and all of that, what happens? You become dumber mm. because that cortisol mm. takes over and if you're programmed for everything else, your subconscious takes over and you're stupid, right? Yeah. It's like your fight or flight. If I'm in a boxing ring and someone's coming at me and I don't know how to box, what do I do? I just put up my arms and I'm dumb and I don't you know, see things coming yeah, at yeah, me. Yeah. So it, when you talk about that wealth is a state of mind, it does go to that to get yourself in that state of mind, right? To be a loose, to allow your mind the freedom of thought because if, if all you're doing right now, and, and maybe this goes back to the coronavirus and the people who are gonna succeed and people aren't, if your mind is filled with noise, yeah. that signal is never gonna get through, right? And that signal is an idea that actually becomes a thing. Yeah. Let it. You know, um, George Lakoff has an excellent book called Metaphors We Live By, and he talks about the paradox of symbols. Um, a symbol has the, the dual function of revealing and concealing at the same time. So whenever you use a symbol, it allows you to understand aspects of a thing in, 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 in a more in-depth way. But it also does that at the expense of pushing back other critical aspects of the thing. So I'm gonna use a religious metaphor and then I'll bring it back to, to money. So in, 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 in uh, the Old Testament of the Bible, you have this problem that occurs where people are trying to relate to this distant, ethereal God. And so what do they do? They build icons, they build graven images because it brings God nearer. It makes God more understandable. And there's value in that. You certainly wanna make God feel nearer to you. But the problem is you begin to lose imagination and you equate the symbol with the reality itself. And now God is as, as, as small as your icon and you can't imagine possibilities that are bigger than that, right? Um, and, and there's something similar that's happened with money. I, I mentioned earlier that money is a symbolic representation of creative value. It's really great that we have things like the dollar and the pound and the yen. This is, this is a major chapter in our economic evolution. The downside, however, is that our imagination has become reduced to the symbol itself. We mistake the symbol for the reality that the symbol represents. And we say, if I don't have any dollars, if I don't have any yen, then I don't have the realities represented by those symbols. I don't have value. I don't have anything to offer. And so in some ways, money has kind of killed our imagination. Yeah. Uh, but if you go back in history to just the fundamental feature of human experience, which is exchange, we didn't think like that. We didn't have that problem. Because in order to get something, you couldn't rely on dollars. You, you looked around at your condition and you say, what do I have? Okay, I got a couple of apples over there. Uh, I can tutor you in math in exchange for something. Uh, let me see here. Um, I, can, I can come over to your place for dinner and I can do a song and dance routine for you and your wife and make you guys laugh while you eat. And maybe you can give me some oranges for that. We were forced to think about our needs in terms of how can I create value for someone else? How can I make a difference in another person's life? And, and having these dollars that we can rely on has made us a little bit lazy. And sometimes when those dollars are taken away, it's a blessing in disguise. It's difficult, but it can be an invitation to get back to the roots of, of what exchange is all about. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Mercadante, and I want to thank you for being a loyal listener to Freedom Mindset Radio. You know, in this chaotic time of coronavirus chaos, it's so important for people to have a process to define, create, and live their lives of freedom and fulfillment. 
I lay out just that process in my Amazon bestseller, Five Pillars of the Freedom Lifestyle. And in light of this turbulent time, I've dropped the Kindle price of my book to $4.50. That's a more than $2 drop in price. I do this because I truly believe that this is a process that will help those who need freedom and fulfillment now. Perhaps it's you. Perhaps you have spent the past five years, 10 years, 15 years trading away your freedom and fulfillment for a false sense of security and a toxic job and a lifestyle that doesn't fulfill you. And now you're realizing that security was an illusion and you want your freedom now. Go to fivepillarsoffreedom.com right now. There, you can get chapter one of my book absolutely free, and there's a link to purchase the book. As I said, we have dropped the price to $4.50 for the Kindle version of my book. I know the five pillars of the freedom lifestyle will help you define, create, and start living your freedom lifestyle now. Thanks again for being a listener. I wish you a day, a week, a year of freedom and abundance. Let's talk about Revolution of One and how you came into it and how you came to do it. What was the process that led to it? Now, Fee has been around for 40 years, 30 years? It's We're been around 75 years. 75 years. I know they've been around for a while. Yeah. Um, and they have programmed. Well, tell us about Fee and then, yeah. I guess, break it down to Revolution of One. Yeah, so, so Fee is the Foundation for Economic Education, the, the oldest free market think tank in the country. And uh, I, I've been an adjunct faculty member with Fee for the past six years. And, and Fee... Um, leads the market in providing seminars and workshops that teach economic literacy and entrepreneurial thinking to high school students and college students. And um, you know, I've, I've been doing this for years. From the very first time I, I did a fee seminar, I immediately fell in love with this unique opportunity to, to interact with the students, uh, to mentor them, to coach them, and to, to watch them interact with each other. One of the great things about our workshops is that it's not just about concepts and ideas, because you can get that from books, you can get that from YouTube videos. It's about creating a context where you can interact meaningfully about the concepts and ideas in a way that makes it easier to integrate it into your life and that reinforces the thinking beyond the workshop, beyond the seminar. And so, you know, I've, I've been doing this with Fee for a while and a lot of my talks centered around the same theme. I, I would keep hitting on those same points about the power of the individual. And as much as I love thinking about economic literacy, I think something that's happened, especially in spaces where we value free markets or Austrian school economics, is we kind of equate economics with one very particular popular medium for talking about economics, and that's politics. Mm. And we kind of make the mistake of assuming that politics is the best or only medium for discussing economics. And it occurred to me, well, wait a minute, we're not the foundation for political education. <laughs> we're the foundation for economic education. And if you truly understand economics, you understand that matters of economic import happen everywhere. Economics is illustrated in sports, Economics is illustrated in the struggles we experience in trying to make our lives better. Economics is present in the midst of conflict resolution. Economics is present when we don't get along with our parents and our families. Economics is present in everything that we do. So what happens if we can take these ideas and we can inspire a new generation to think about economics without resorting to the same old politician bashing that everyone else is doing? Yeah. And that, that's easy to get quick hits and so forth. But we start having conversations about the things that people already care about. Because there are a lot of people that don't care about economics, but they do care about their own success. They do care about their own struggles. 
they do care about their own desire for well-being. So what does economics look like when we start the conversation there? Hey man, let's talk about you. What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are you afraid of? What's hurting you? Let's talk about what economics has to do with that. Not as a trick to get you to learn what I care about, but as a tool to empower you. Because to study economics is to study power. Interesting. So in this day and age where everyone talks about the new uh, en vogue idea of socialism, Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Bernie came within a whatever of, well, I guess he, it's not officially over in the primary, but Bernie was there. You've got AOC now talking about that and everyone's talking about how great socialism is and how it's making a comeback. And here you go and you launch Revolution of One right in this context. How has the, um, the response been and have you gotten any pushback on it? Man, um, I, I haven't gotten any pushback, fingers crossed, and, and, and maybe some will come. I, I don't really care. I don't, I don't focus on keeping track of how much pushback you know, I have because I'm, I'm too busy pushing forward right, <laughs> to feel the pushback. But, but I will say this, man. Um, I don't think I'm ever going to meet anybody that's not interested in their own well-being, mm-hmm. right? We, we, may, we may have the habit of using uh, a certain kind of linguistic apparatus to describe that interest. And for some people, um, when they think about what's best for me and the kind of world I want to live in, they may use that word socialism. Mm-hmm. But the starting point for my conversations is not, hey, what's your political philosophy? That's not the starting point because your political philosophy is a secondary expression of your life philosophy, right? Um, You tell me what your politics are, I can tell you a whole lot about what you think of yourself, right? Um, And and, and so I wanna have those conversations where we begin by saying, hey, look, let's not allow a difference, a potential difference in political philosophy to keep us from talking to one another. Let's Let's talk as human beings that are trying to create the results that matter most to them. I wanna know what those results are and I wanna know what your why is and, and, and then perhaps we can talk about some ideas that can empower you more effectively to create the kind of world that matters to you. And the, those conversations are so important because I, I, I find because of the tribalism and attaching meaning to a person yeah, yeah. or a symbol that I've had this experience, I, I'm sure you have as well, where you get into that discussion of what do you want in your life? Where do you want it to go? And you get into that discussion and you realize it's going in a completely different direction than, for instance, the symbol or the politician they support. But because of a tribalism or something that has nothing to do with what they want in their life, they've attached it to that person. And it's easy to get frustrated and say, oh my gosh, what are they? They want to get rid of all government, but they're supporting Bernie Wagner. Like, who cares, right? That doesn't make them a bad person, but get to know each other because once you get past that tribalism, you realize they're a completely different person than what they're their T-shirt says or their bumper sticker says, right? And, Absolutely, you know. <laughs> Absolutely, and, and it's funny too, because when you, when you think about why people change their behavior, it's, it's rarely because you beat them in an argument. Now, I know that breaks a lot of people's hearts to hear, and I'm not dismissing the power of argument because my life has changed because of the power of argument, and I have seen that happen with other people. But on a large scale, why do people use Uber when at the time people were talking about it as an idea, everyone had nothing but objections to it. In fact, I'll give you an example. I saw this video of Bill Gates on the David Letterman show. And Bill Gates was trying to explain to David Letterman the internet, like the, yeah, the, the potential that. of the internet, right? right? Yeah. 
And, 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 and Letterman's like so confused by this idea, right? He's like, so, so what does it allow me to do? And, and Bill Gates is getting smashed in this debate if you just judge it by people's reactions. He, he, try, he starts with, uh, with saying things like, well, you can like listen to a baseball game. And, and Letterman's like, uh, you ever heard of radio? And the audience <laughs>, laughs at Bill Gates. And he's like, yeah, but you can listen whenever you want. He's like, uh, you ever heard of like VCR? You know? And, 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 then, and then Bill Gates tries to tell him like, well, you can read information that you like if you're interested in sports. Uh, you ever heard of magazines? And, and, the, and the whole bit just goes on like that. And it's a great illustration of how you can have a vastly superior idea and people will mock it and laugh at it because they, they have no ability to taste and touch and smell and see the instantiation of that idea. But what happened when entrepreneurs got involved in the game of, of materializing and manifesting that idea without even making a conscious decision to, to take an ideological leap, people just got into the internet, right? And now we look back at that clip and this time around, we laugh at David Letterman and we laugh at ourselves. This is why I believe in an entrepreneurial theory of social change. For me, I'm not interested in just changing the way people see the world, I'm interested in changing the world that people see. You know, if you walk into a room and it's dark, and there's someone you know, walking around like a bumbling idiot, knocking things over, bruising themselves as they bump into the wall, you can scream at them all you want, hey man, be careful, and they won't change. But then if you just flip that switch, they will begin to act like a person who sees. And how do we flip the switch? We flip the switch by taking the ideas of freedom, applying them with a spirit of entrepreneurialism, and giving them to people in a way that they can viscerally engage. This is why every socialist regime has focused most of their attention at outlawing art, at mu music, bubblegum, blue jeans, and so forth, because the enemies of freedom always know where the real power is. But the people who love freedom, we don't get it. What does bubblegum have to do with freedom? <laughs> what do movies and music have to do with freedom? You're watering down the ideas. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't care about what the people who love freedom have to say. Show me what the enemies of freedom do whenever they want to stop things, because whatever they're afraid of, that's where the power is. That's where I want to be. You bring up the Bill Gates Letterman video and thinking about ideas. Now, Bill Gates is Bill Gates. He's going to do what he's going to do no matter what, yeah, right? Yeah. But you got a 15-year-old or a 20-year-old or even a 45-year-old who has this idea. And it's an idea for what they want. It's an idea for their vision. It's something new. They're going to build this. You got to be careful with who you tell that to. I think it's Steve Harvey says, don't tell your dreams to small-minded people. Mm. Mm. Um, a lot of people can't get their idea past that stage because Bill Gates is like, well, I got more money than anyone. I don't care if you're gonna laugh at me. Wait another 15 years. Are there a lot of people who, they make the mistake of telling all of these people and all these people come and say, no, man, you, you got that finance degree. Just put your head down and focus on that. Why are you gonna do that? What do you tell, and I say youth because you know they're still in that programming phase, but this could be anyone. When you have that idea, do you go out and tell everyone about it? Is that dangerous? Or do you focus on, you know, the, the old Stephen Covey, find the five people who, you know, you want to be and you focus on them? Um, because lots of people choose friends that are going in a different direction than them, and it can be a little bit dangerous. And if you, if you haven't girded your loins for individualism for a while, uh, you know, it's easy to give up that idea to be cool. Yeah. So, man, there's, there's a lot we can say about this. So uh, first, I, I want to I kind of um, 
uh, illuminate my concept of what support really is. Mm-hmm. Um, there are two forms that support can take. One is for me to celebrate your performance, mm-hmm. right? Um, the other would be for me to challenge your performance. And it's easy to equate support with me being like, good job, buddy. I believe in you, man. Hey, if you can conceive it, you can achieve it. And that's being positive at the expense of truth. And when you're being positive at the expense of truth, you're being delusional. And I believe in inspiration, I believe in motivation, but I don't believe in being delusional. I believe that our efforts to encourage people ought to be grounded in truth. So just because people are challenging you and playing devil's advocate doesn't mean that they're being unloving doesn't mean they're being unsupported. If you have a dream, if you have something that you wanna do with your life, it should be able to stand the test of scrutiny, right? And the things you're gonna have to go through, because entrepreneurship is hard, creativity is hard, man, and the things you're gonna have to go through to bring an idea into manifestation are gonna be much harder than your friends laughing at you. It's gonna be much harder than your parents being like, well, how are you gonna make money doing that? Like, if you think those are the hard questions, (laughs) it's never gonna get any easier than that. I wish all I had to deal with as an entrepreneur was my parents wondering how I'm gonna make money, right? It gets much more difficult. So if you can't get past that level of the game, you got to ask yourself, do I really want this? Right? Um, Secondly, when people challenge you, it's important to use that opportunity to refine your idea. Because if you find yourself in a position where you can't answer their tough questions, it might indicate a kind of weakness in your own game. It might indicate that you maybe haven't thought about some very important things in a clear way. When I watched that Bill Gates quote, um, a clip, One of the things I did after turning it off was I sat there and I practiced for like 30 minutes, man. How would I explain the internet Mm. to someone if I were in that clip? And it was really hard, but it made me realize I don't even understand this thing I believe in (laughs) as well as I thought I did, right? Right. But it was a good exercise. So I say don't run from those challenges. Embrace those challenges and use them as an opportunity to think more clearly. I'm not a proponent of, of this idea that you should isolate yourself and remove yourself from the people that don't pat you on the back and believe in your dreams. You should actually make an effort to use those people to challenge yourself to get better. With that having been said, you can only take so much of that. And you do have to balance yourself, balance your social interactions with people that do have your best interest in mind. And you do need a certain amount of uh, affirmation. Mm -hmm. And so I I would say, try to surround yourself, not just with people that encourage you, but people that have gone the places you're trying to go. Go find other entrepreneurs and small business owners and mentors that have actually lived in the places you wanna visit, that have actually built businesses of their own, that have actually gone through hardship and get advice and encouragement from them. With that, you deliver your message on Twitter, on YouTube, and, and, and that's how you reach people. But social media can always also be a lot of noise. Yeah. What do you tell people who are, listen, I'm going and I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm going through it and I'm building what I want to build and I'm having a revolution of one and I'm an individual, shiny object, shiny object, shiny object. And especially now with coronavirus, it's like boom, boom, boom. And it's hard, right? It's hard. It's that dopamine rush in the middle of the day. I'm trying to build my business, but oh my gosh, I got to go over here. But you also need the tools yeah. to go and build. That's how you reach people. What's the fine line? And, and you know, I'm 45, so I knew how to build stuff and do stuff before it, and it's still yeah. tough for me. But if you're 15, if you're 20, um, how do you stay productive? How do you stay focused with the noise that's coming at you more than ever? 
Yeah, man. Um, well, I, I think you have to be mindful and deliberate about everything that you do. My mom would always say to me, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there, right? Um, having a budget, having a schedule isn't just for people that are really busy, but it's also for people that are easily distracted, right? So one thing I would say is if you've got some goals and you've been trying to work on them and social media keeps distracting you, well then schedule time to work on those goals and schedule a separate time to get on social media. And you can, you can do this in any way that you want. So you can say, all right, I am allowed to have social media time every day at this hour, every day at this hour, and every day at this hour. You got three points in your day where you get to go on social media and do whatever you want for half an hour, right? It doesn't even have to be responsible. You get to do whatever you want. But in the meantime, in between time, when you're not doing that, you are doing your work. And if you need to go to social media for work, schedule in times in your day where you go there for work, schedule times where you go there for fun. I think one of the things that makes us indulge in too much fun is our failure to make a priority out of fun. We tend to only schedule the responsible stuff, but we don't schedule time for play. And that's important too, because if your brain doesn't know, it doesn't have the assurance that there's gonna be time to just kind of loosen up and have a little fun, then it's going to try to just take that wherever it can get it. You know, um, it, it, it kind of reminds me of um, a, a time I, I brought uh, a little brother with me um, to this event. And uh, not not my blood brother, but like big brother, big sister, and, uh, and 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 there are these snacks, you know, and he just starts taking these snacks and like stuffing his his jacket in them, right? And I say, whoa, whoa, whoa! I say, hey man, you don't need to do that. Just take what you need right now. And if you want a second back, you can come back and get it. And that was a revelation to him because he came from a scarcity mindset where his mind didn't have any assurance that if I want more, I can have more. So he tried to hoard and take everything that he can get in that moment. And sometimes our brain does that with play, with games, with distractions. You need a certain amount of that. Give yourself the assurance that you're gonna get it by scheduling in time to play, to surf the web, and then you won't feel the need to be a hoarder when you need to be working. Last question, freedom and security. And there's the famous quotes by Ben Franklin that have been taken out of context. And, uh, but we see now a coronavirus. You saw it in 2007, 2008 in financial meltdown. You see it in 2001, right? When something happens and people's security or sense of security or perceived security is threatened, mm -hmm. they are more than willing to give up freedom. And, but take, take away national crises, terrorist attacks, viruses, and, and even in our personal lives, that, yes, I wanna go here. I have a vision for where I wanna go. I wanna build this company. I wanna do this. I wanna travel the world. But security is tugging you back, right? Security is like, man, you need that paycheck. You need that monthly safe comfort zone. Even if it's a comfort zone of misery, it's still comfortable. How can people, what advice do you give people who wanna be entrepreneurs, who have that entrepreneurial dream, but that security, man, it's a, it's a warm blanket, right? You keep going back to it. Even, you know, people at 15 keep going back to that warm blanket and they get to 45 and they're like, man, I wish, yeah. I wish I had thrown off the blanket and tried it. Yeah. Well, well, part of this is our fault because many of us speak of entrepreneurship as if it's an all or nothing kind of pursuit, right? 
we we paint this Disney-like picture of entrepreneurship where it's like leaving behind everything that is safe and familiar and known and then reaching for the stars and trusting the universe to magically reward you for your blind faith. And that's not the reality of what entrepreneurship is. Most people who start businesses don't have the luxury of just quitting their job at the moment they have an idea and then experiencing the universe as some magical place that says, here's some money, here's a longer runway. No, no, like we, we have to... We have to build while still having to answer tough questions like, how are we gonna take care of our family? How are we gonna pay the rent? So I would say, being an, one of the things that makes being an entrepreneur hard is that you don't get to have any easy way out. That would be the easy path to say, I'm just gonna quit my job and just like follow my dream. Okay, uh, that's, you know, that, that's not thinking very critically. It's much harder to be the kind of entrepreneur that says, I'm gonna keep my restaurant job and I'm gonna work you know, the eight, nine, 10 hours a day I usually work. And when I come home, instead of giving that two hours to TV or vegging out on the couch or whatever it may be, I'm gonna spend that two hours before I go to bed working on my side hustle. And I'm gonna do that every day with patience and persistence for the next six to eight months until that two hours is creating enough value to where I can turn it into four to where I can turn it into six. And then maybe I can get to a point where I'm pretty close to matching my income from my job and then I've earned the right to come home and focus on this full time and then I go for the next stage of growth. So be patient, don't have an either or mindset. Look at your day job as like your first investor in your business. I always tell people, it's cool to dream for something bigger than where you currently work, but before you quit your day job, do me a favor and stop despising yourself for having one. Interesting, I get a lot of people who they have a job and they, they want to build their side hustle, but they can't find the time. I say, okay, what, what about when you get home from work? Well, it's family time. Okay, I get that. Yeah. What about when they go to bed? Ah, uh, that's late. Okay, well, what about the morning? I'm not a morning person. Okay, then don't do the side hustle. They're like, what? Mm. I'm like, I don't know, I just gave you options. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. If you do want to do it, then do it. Become a morning person, become a night person, but yeah. it's, it's uh, I guess it's that comfort zone and it's that it, um, there's trade-offs to everything, right? Yeah, well, we do have this bias against small taking small steps. Um, I have a revolution of one video called Non-Zero Days, where I, I kind of talk about this idea that, that all you need is a non-zero day. You don't need a hero day. You just need a day that is not equal to doing nothing. Um, and, and so you take this person who's like, I don't have any time. Um, I think this often comes from a place of feeling like we are insulting our dreams if we can't put a certain amount of time into mm -hmm. it. So usually when people talk like this, I've coached a lot of students who say they don't have time, right? And a lot of these people who fall in that category, it turns out that they don't have to work on the weekends, right? Like they've got Saturdays and Sundays off, but they still feel like they don't have time. Um, and, and you have to help them understand that they have permission to take from noon to three o'clock p.m. on a Saturday to work on their dream, and that's just all they get for the week. Oh, but I'm insulting my dream. Oh, but someone is gonna tell me, well, if that's all you do, you're not really serious about your dream. Hey man, your life is what it is, your starting point is what it is, and it's just like being healthy. I don't care what diet you're on, there's gonna be some nutritionist or a fitness trainer that's like, you're insulting health by not doing more. You could be doing, you can always be doing more. Just start where you are. Even if you can only get in 15 minutes a week, be patient and do that because that momentum that you build will transform that 15 minutes into an hour and then it begins to grow exponentially. That hour becomes two, 
that two becomes four, that four becomes more, you know? Speaking of starting where you are, people wanna hop on, people wanna view your content, Revolution of One, where can they find you, best place? Yeah, you can go to feed.org slash rev1 and all the links are there, that'll take you to everything, the one-stop shop. Also go to YouTube and just type in Revolution of One and it'll bring you to, uh, to my site with uh, weekly inspirational content, weekly videos and so forth, yeah. T.K. Coleman, Director of Entrepreneurial Education at the Foundation for Economic Education and host of Revolution of One. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. 